This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Europe's Fault Lines, Racism and the Rise of the Right by Liz Fakiti. It is clear that the right is on the rise, but after Brexit, the election of Donald Trump, and the spike in popularity of extreme right parties across Europe, the question on everyone's mind is, how did this happen? Europe's Fault Lines is an expansive investigation of the ways in which a newly configured right interconnects with anti-democratic and illiberal forces at the level of the state, providing much-needed answers and revealing some uncomfortable truths. What appear to be blind spots about far-right extremism on the part of the state are shown to constitute collusion, as police, intelligence agencies, and the military embark on practices of covert policing that bring them into direct or indirect contact with the far-right, in ways that bring to mind the darkest days of Europe's authoritarian past. Old racisms may be structured deep in European thought, but they have been revitalized and spun in new ways. The war on terror, the cultural revolution from the right, and the migration-linked demonization of the destitute scrounger, drawing on more than three decades of work for the Institute of Race Relations, Liz Fakiti exposes the fundamental fault lines of racism in contemporary Europe. Europe's Fault Lines, Racism and the Rise of the Right, by Liz Fakiti, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Surprise, surprise. On Monday, a majority of Senate Democrats voted to sell out the Dreamers, undocumented young people who came to this country as children. Weirdly enough, this capitulation initially didn't seem inevitable. Last week, those Democrats had conjured up a rare spine— under relentless pressure from immigrant rights activists, refusing to go along with a government funding bill unless Republicans agreed to protect dreamers. Now, that fleeting dream, that Democrats might actually be a remotely potent vehicle for resisting the right, has reverted to the standard nightmare of establishment moderation. My guest today is Jeff Stein, who covers policy for The Washington Post. Previously, He was a congressional reporter at Vox and founded the Ithaca Voice, an independent media outlet in upstate New York. Before we get going, please take a moment of your time and a tiny bit of your money to make a contribution to the show at patreon.com slash the dig. If you listen to us all the time and keep thinking, oh, I should really donate now, well, now is a great time to donate. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. We pay well nothing and put tons of work into the show, and we can only do it with your support. So, please and thank you. Okay, here's Jeff Stein. Jeff Stein, welcome to the dig. Thanks for having me. Uh, Long-time listener, uh, first time uh, on the show. 
<laughs> you could have said first time caller, but in fact, I called you. It'd be slightly dishonest to the listeners. <laughs> so for those experiencing whiplash from even faster paced than normal 24 hour news cycles and not quite following what happened, can you explain what just went down and why Democrats ultimately buckled? Just to rewind, the sort of precipitating event for all of this was in September, uh, President Trump announced that he would sunset and gradually uh, end the the DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which ensured that 700,000 young immigrants brought to uh, this country as children um, could could stay and work uh, and have uh, temporary protections. Uh, Trump announced the end of that, and we've been sort of dealing with with the fallout um, since then. the response from Democrats is universal in that these um, kids, and, and I shouldn't say kids because the average age is 26, many of them are, are parents or teachers and, and have jobs in the economy, um, but that this, that this huge population, uh, everyone on the Democratic side agrees should stay, and, and many Republicans do as well, including at times President Trump has said so. Um, the big difference, particularly on the Democratic side, is over tactics and, and how do you effectuate that outcome. Uh, and the dreamers themselves, um, this, this population of young of young immigrants, has really and, and quite impressively and with with really an unbelievable degree of perseverance and um, fortitude, has slowly, very slowly, convinced the Democratic Party that this is an issue worth fighting for. And when they say fighting for, they mean being willing to shut down the government to extract leverage from the Republican Party to ensure that that these children are protected. So, um, way back in September, um, there were maybe two or three House Democrats were willing to entertain this notion. It was really regarded as sort of the the far left radical fringe, this belief that you should shut down the government to make sure that Republicans agreed to protect these dreamers. Uh, Luis Gutierrez of Chicago um, said this, and Pramila Jayapal sort of hinted at it, and Judy Chu of California. Um, But really, it was was not uh, viewed as a mainstream position at all on the Hill. And over the last four or five months, as the fate of the dreamers looks more and more in doubt, uh, more and more Democrats have been convinced that this is worth fighting for until you get to a position. Becomes more in doubt and people are actually losing their their protected status in the meantime. That's right. Thousands a day. And you have reports of, of people's uh, applications getting lost in the mail um, and uh, Trump's uh, ICE um, agents uh, arresting uh, prominent activists and, and the climate uh, is a, a lot scarier and, and for good reason. And so the sort of the intensity of the pressure on Democrats builds and builds um, sort of concurrent with this. There's uh, bipartisan negotiation going on between Dick Durbin, um, the number two uh, ranking Democrat in the Senate, uh, and Lindsey Graham, a Republican who has been open to, to working with, Repub- with Democrats on the Dreamers. And uh, sort of as this um, issue intensifies, uh, Durbin and Graham had an agreement, a bipartisan agreement that they went to the White House with earlier this month. Uh, Trump rejected that agreement after talking to uh, House and Senate conservatives, including Tom Cotton. Uh, and they sh- This is the meeting that they show up to thinking that it's just going to be them talking to Trump and these immigration hardliners are 
to their surprise, yeah, sitting in the room. There. Yeah, exactly. Uh, unexpectedly. Um, I've never been to a meeting and Tom Cotton has, has just been there un- unannounced, but I imagine it would be a quite <laughs> surprising prospect. I, I would find it unsettling personally. Exactly. Um, and and this, is, this is the meeting when Trump describes a number of countries that non-white people come from as, as either shitholes or shithouses. Yes, uh, that shithouses thing. The whole controversy over the exact terminology is one peel of the onion of stupidity and ridiculousness. (laughs) But even the, I mean, I think this is not an original point that I'm making, but but even the fact that such a huge portion of the mainstream media's attention was consumed by the shithole comment, you know, forgetting the shithole versus shithouses debate, like that's another level of stupidity. But the controversy in itself was really dumb because, I mean, I'm a, a regular consumer of the news, and I missed that. Like the most important thing that happened in that meeting was the fact that Trump rejected a deal that would have protected the DACA kids, and because we were just talking about this sort of vulgarity uh, etiquette concern, because that is easier for a lot of the media to to call out and call attention to. That's all we winded up talking about for a little bit instead of the underlying critical issue. Um, you know, it, it's it's again not an original point. I think Matt Christman uh, was talking about on on Chapo about uh, when there was that controversy over Trump, uh, a sort of bungling the uh, condolence calls to soldiers, and that dominated the media's attention for about a week, and. Nobody thought to actually Rather than the, issue the intervention about, in Niger. Why? Yeah, like, oh, wait. Soldiers. Uh, yeah. yeah most Americans don't know that Niger and Nigeria are separate countries, let alone that we have troops in one of them. Right. At least and, one of them. I think we have troop. I think we've had troops at least in in, in both of them I, because of uh, the Boko Haram uh, situation in, in Nigeria. But anyways, yeah, I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the way the, the, the way that this obsession over Trump's violations of of decorum and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be a big deal that he is uh, recapitulating eugenicist notions that prevailed in 1920s immigration politics and referring to Finland as an ideal um, right. you know, place for immigrants to come from. Right. And, and I think there was a lot of sort of like white, like woke white, <laughs> like brocialist sort of commentary similar to the one that I just made that was like, this is a bourgeois concern that the president you know, uses racist <laughs> language in the White House, which I don't. I don't think it's true. Like, like it, you know, it, it is not the place of, <laughs> of the white brochures to tell, you know, furious African Americans and Hispanics in this country that the president, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of language he uses to defer, refer to people from brown countries. That's 100% true. And like, I think it is very dangerous for people on the left to try to police that kind of reaction. But at the same time, like, Clearly, like the most important issue is the policy, and and really and in this case, what happens to the DACA right uh, recipients? And so I think sort of coming out of that meeting and the shithole comments, you had a a sort of a high water mark of of sort of liberal and and Democrats on the Hill feeling emboldened that that this was going to be their time to fight um, that that they had the upper hand that. You know the president's approval ratings are are low. He said something incredibly racist. Every everybody in the mainstream media is denouncing him for that, and and sort of that momentum from that whole fallout created this um, confidence in Democrats that they were going to uh, fight for for something. And and we should get into to what exactly happened over the last few days with the shutdown. But but that momentum carried into the next week and combining with the extant rage and insecurity of the dreamers, um, 
led more and more Democrats to say that they're not going that they weren't going to go along with something that didn't protect them, um, at least for for a little bit. What were Schumer and the the Senate Democratic leadership? What do you think that they were planning when they went into the shutdown? And then why, you know, I was hanging out with people on Saturday and just being like, yeah, there's so much bad news. But, man, the Democrats for the first time that I can remember, you know, conjured up a spine and um, stood up for something against the Republicans. And then on Monday, it all of a sudden became conventional wisdom that very suddenly, as far as I could see, that this was not playing well for Democrats and thus that they were caving. Why did that, if you can just kind of trace the trajectory from Friday to Monday, because I don't get it. <laughs> I think just in a very big picture way, like to me, there's there's two consistent positions. One is that like we should shut down the government to protect the dreamers. Like that's position one. Position two is we should not shut down the government to, walk, to protect the dreamers. And like, I, I fully understand position one and I fully understand position two. What seems inexplicable is having position one on Friday saying that, you know, it's worth shutting down the government over, over the dreamers and then come Monday not believing that anymore. Um, I, you know, there's been a lot of second guessing of Schumer personally. I, I am, um, and, and that's come, you know, from people on the Hill on the left. I, I think like there's very little he could have done once the sort of right wing of his party broke off. And and I remember tweeting this on Friday night, sort of even when it looked like Democrats and even when they did shut down the government, you could tell that there were that there were sort of these little uh, caveats that these moderate, quote unquote, moderate senators from red states were putting on their statements saying that they were going to shut down the government. So, you know, it wasn't as if the entire caucus was doing what Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have said, which is we are shutting down the government until these kids are safe. And that's a group of people that had voted to shut down the government before as a, mi- right, as exactly. a small minority and did of Democrats. So again, and did so again as the shutdown came to an end over their objections, right? Um, but this, this sort of more moderate group was saying we need a better funding deal. We need to ensure the children's health insurance program. We need to ensure that we get a moder- you know, enough relief for Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. So they were sort of telegraphing at the time that this was not just about dreamers, even though for a huge portion of their caucus it was. And I think this is sort of where Schumer got trapped because he wanted to tell the left flank of his caucus, look, we're going to go to bat for the dreamers and, and enter this fight. But he also wanted to, to do everything he could to make sure that the right flank was there for that fight. So we had this sort of like quantum, like sort of uncertainty about like, what exactly is this shutdown about? And, you know, if you were to talk to some people on the Democratic sort of messaging side, as we were going into the shutdown, they were like, look, don't say this is just about the dreamers. But, but it because was. Republican, because, because Republicans want to say that Democrats are prioritizing illegal immigrants, protecting illegal immigrants over paying our troops. That's their messaging right, going right. into the shutdown. Even though obviously Republicans um, vetoed an amendment that would have ensured the troops got paid throughout the duration of the government shutdown. Democrats wouldn't, as a whole, outside of the left flank, would not embrace the shutdown being about what it was about, which was a signal that they really didn't have the stamina to go through with it. That's my. That's exactly how I, I feel about it. And, you know, there was polling that emerged. So I think it was on Saturday, saying, you know, that the, the um, you know, the public did not believe in shutting down the government over immigration. Um, 
And then today, after they shut down the government, polling comes out that suggests that actually, in fact, the public would support that. Of course, it's, it's now too late. Um, to, to uh, take back the votes that they had on Monday. But, I mean, it really, talk about uh, opening yourself up to the peril of chasing public opinion polling, right? It, it just three days later, they had polling that countervailed all the evidence they had, and we could have seen headlines about the public blaming Trump and uh, the Republicans for the shutdown. Um, I, I guess there will be a follow-up opportunity to, to do something about that. But To what degree did, did changing media frames shape the Democrats' decision-making? Because I remember reading one article in The Times, maybe on on Friday or maybe Saturday, that was like, listen, the Democrats have, it was one of their news analysis, i.e. like we're putting opinion on the front page, uh, which is fine. <laughs> but I'm a news reporter, but I wanted to be an opinion columnist my whole life. So is there any way we can work around this? And so I'm going to write it like a news article, but with opinions. Um and the article, the, the 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 news analysis was making the case that I thought was reasonable enough that the Republicans had demonstrated in the past that shutdowns don't, um, as much as Americans might dislike whatever party they blame for the shutdown, they don't remember them because so much stuff happens in the intervening period. And that can only be more true if that is true, generally speaking, if Republicans demonstrated that in the past when they shut down the government, that can only be more true now because of Trump um, putting the 24-hour news cycle on, you know, meth- methamphetamine adult mm-hmm. turbocharge. So that, <laughs> I like, I thought that was kind of part, like the mainstream media frame initially, part of it at least. Mm-hmm. Did, did the mainstream media frame change and did that, did that impact Democrats? It's really hard to know, like, what precisely Democrats on the Hill are taking their cues from. I mean, you know, a lot of it is is cable news and TV, but I think a lot of the cable news and TV coverage is informed by a handful of, of sort of pundits and opinion writers. And, and very, very quickly, the, like, Jonathan Shade, um, uh Josh Marshall, I, I don't know if Josh Marshall wrote this specifically, but, but that sort of... Um, the TPM kind of pundit yeah like the the center left david leonhardt is like a perfect example of this and he came out with a piece arguing that you know democrats were at risk of looking like the freedom caucus and playing uh hardball to an extent that would show the american public that they're you know no better than like the hostage takers of the far right this is sort of the progressive who gets things done gallery yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 are very like let's you know, very concerned with sort of um etiquette and uh that norms. That sort of, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know, there's probably a, a good uh term for that for that group, but but whatever you want to call it. Norm they, we could call them normcore Democrats. <laughs> normcore I liberals. I love that. I love that. <laughs> normcore liberals explained. Um <laughs> if if you were to isolate their position on this and compare it to where the Democrats themselves were. I mean, this has been like a very clarifying experience for me that I, that also sort of confirmed what I saw in the Medicare for All fight, which is that Senate Democrats and the Democratic Party establishment and institutions for either need for self-preservation or because of the polling they're seeing, or I don't, I don't know what it is, but they are more allied with the progressive movement and the progressive cause on numerous fronts than the norm core liberal um, pundits. 
And I think, you know, this is just another great illustration of that, where you had a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of, um, you know, even if they weren't sort of explicitly saying that Democrats are being um, Ted Cruz-like and should knock it off, they were sort of strongly implying it. And I think that filtered very quickly um, because, you know, if, if you, you know, you look at the main bar of, of media coverage and look at talking heads on, on CNN, you, 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 the precondition for winning over Republicans to a, a progressive cause is a, is a united Democratic Party policy with its, with its uh, uh, you know, sort of related apparatuses marching in lockstep. And, and I, I'll ask listeners to think back to the Obamacare repeal fight where you had universal consensus across every Senate Democrat, and not only every Senate Democrat, but all of their um, validators in the media and all of their validators in the think tank world, saying unequivocally that this was a monstrosity that would uh, you know, amount to uh, tens of millions of people losing their insurance and that it had to be stopped immediately. And that was, that was not only the, the message you would get from Senate Democrats themselves universally, but you, that you would get from um, Vox and from TPM and from Jonathan Chait and from everywhere you looked. And that cacophony, that sort of sort of fulsome um, demand was really not there. It was, it was there for a bulk of the Senate Democratic caucus and barely in the center-left media and barely um, in the think tank world. And, and that, I think that gap and that hole created the space for, for the media coverage to turn against Democrats very quickly. And then as a result for Democrats to pick up on that turning media coverage and to cave um, very quickly. To play devil's advocate here after having beaten up on centrist Democrats, as I tend to do, do you give some credence to Trump state Democrats' more instrumental, pragmatic fears as much as we all wish politics weren't about those things that they are <laughs> vulnerable in Missouri or West Virginia over shutting down a government to protect undocumented immigrants. I mean, I get that on an abstract level, but concretely, half of them, half of the Trump state Democrats, at least, didn't Mm -hmm. didn't vote for it anyways. And they're going to get tied to Schumer and Pelosi and whatever anyways. I mean, it's really hard to make sense of that decision making process. Like now they have the left infuriated by them, right? Hispanic voters, as far as the ones who are paying attention, are livid at Democrats for for caving on at the Democrats you're talking about. And you might say in these states there aren't that many Hispanic voters, but you know there are going to be some, and there are going to be progressives and young people who are looking at people to rally behind. And I actually talked to Bernie. Uh, Sanders, right before the shutdown fighting, he was saying, like, this is about showing the American public that we are willing to fight for them. And if we get turnout up 5% from previous midterms, we will win. It's that simple. And, in, in, you, you know, if you look at other developed countries, higher turnout leads to much more progressive policy because you have more poor and lower middle income people turning out. Um, of course, you know, there is some like rich irony for me, like safely sitting in my post cubicle telling you how, you know, Democrats who are, who have their careers on the line in red states should should act. And I think that, you know, it makes sense that that gives you pause. But, I, you know, the, the thing that they clearly don't want to be is out on a limb from the rest of the party. And if the rest of the party is already chafing in that direction, then it's not that hard for them to to move even just a tiny step to the right. So, you know, if you look at the center of balance for the party, I think that's sort of the most important factor for determining where they end up, not necessarily if it's the purely rational thing to end up 
being reelected, if, if that makes sense. And I also think that as much as the Dreamers pushing Democrats to move to a shutdown on Friday represents an enormous victory for for the left, um, the that, that, that the votes to end the shutdown um, came from people like I'm sitting in Providence, Rhode Island, from the two senators <laughs> from Rhode Island, Reed and Whitehouse, in an extremely heavily Latino state, and that they feel safe doing that um, and not like they're not going to face a primary threat is troubling to me. Yeah, totally. And I, I feel like there's so much like energy around like primarying Mansion and Tester and Heitkamp in South Dakota and Montana and West Virginia, but to me, that doesn't make any sense. Like if, if I were, if you gave me like a, a, like $10 million to orchestrate a progressive uh, campaign, to, to me, that's, that's irrational. The, the places where you could really, I think, more easily move the party to the left is by primarying Democrats in very blue states that have historically voted, you know, have extremely conservative. I mean, Rhode Island is a perfect example. Maryland is another great example. Um, I mean, the list, I mean, Carper is and Cardin are just, you know, they have very hawkish records and they've been there for a long time. And, you know, they, they are popular in their states, but they, I think they would at least be vulnerable to a primary challenge. And just look what happened in California. You had, um, you have several progressive, really, you know, very uh, um, uh, left-wing candidates taking on Dianne Feinstein, who's 83 and running for who knows what term. And, um, she voted against um, both uh, attempts to fund the government, and, and it seems very unlikely that she would have done those without the primary challenge. And everyone recognizes that. And the thing that blows my mind is that those same people who recognize that Feinstein voted against it because of uh, the primary challenge are also the people who, the second there is a primary challenge, say, what's the point of this? <laughs> like, there's just, like, there's no recognition that the next time we're going to validate the the pressure point that is effectuating that change in behavior among the elected official. Uh, well, it's because because the party establishment's re- relationship to the left is entirely cynical and instrumental. I always point out that you know after the Nader campaign and, and obviously during the Nader campaign in two thousand, the idea was you know why are you running a spoiler third party candidate? Implicitly, the message of that I think includes work within the party, and then the left tries to work within the party. In 2016, with a historic primary challenge from Bernie Sanders, but that's not acceptable to the Democratic establishment either. The Democratic establishment wants the left to shut up and do what they're told and vote for whoever they put up at the end of the day. Yeah, even if they vote to, to fund the government despite uh, lack of a guarantee for, for 700,000 dreamers. Um, it, it's, it's really hard to... Uh, you know, to, I mean, to, to what you're saying, I think it's easy to, to feel that way. But don't you also feel like like some of this is changing? I mean, just look at how yes. quickly this line took over the Democratic Party and and how how many of them are, were willing to embrace Medicare for all. Um, the, oh, yeah. The trap I feel like when I say that is like I can hear the rebuttal in my own head, which is like by saying this, you're taking off the heat that made the movement itself possible, right? I feel the same way. (laughs) like a little contradiction there. I feel like um, that one has to both on the left be very quick to call the Democratic Party out for like, look, there they go again. This is exactly what we should expect from them. But also we need to celebrate victories when they when they happen. And, um, you know, I am been a close student recently of the history of immigration politics for a book that I am finishing up 
right now. And I think it is absolutely stunning that in, you know, this year that every single Democrat, I think, that's that's thought to be considering a run in 2020 for the presidency, that they thought that, that what they needed to do to be politically viable was vote to protect undocumented immigrants is incredible because in 2006, Hillary Clinton thought that the smart thing that someone planning to run for president should do is vote for the Secure Fence Act, which led to the construction of 700 odd miles of the border wall that we already have in this country. So there's this new polarization taking place on immigration and other other issues that um, for the left is incredibly good and represents a sea change from from just even if compared to even just a few years ago, I think. Yeah. And, and I mean, the point about sort of pressing on the left, I mean, you, you really can take this fight back to Obama, who was extremely reluctant to issue this, these protections for um, dreamers in the first place. If you remember, he said at a rally or he was challenged on this, that he, you know, he's not the king um, and therefore that ICE needs to deport a record number of people, I guess. That's sort of um, a precept of democracy for reasons I don't I don't understand. Um but, you know, he became responsive to this left wing pressure over time. And it was only through really this. Sh- I mean, I just really to take a step back. The I've been talking a lot about sort of the way the Senate Democrats have moved to fight on this. But the, the true heroes, I mean, the true people who are are in the trenches here are the dreamers themselves. And, you know, I walk in and out of the Capitol pretty frequently. And, you know, since early September, I mean, the first week of September, you cannot go outside on the Capitol lawn and not see a couple dozen, even if it's just a small group of, of you know, dreamers who with orange hats on and, and their um, their flags and their signs um, and, and their lapels. And, and it's it's a true testament to um, sort of their their convictions and their um sort of optimism about America. I mean, that sounds corny, but, but they have a conviction that, that this country um, owes them their protection. And I, I was talking to um, Luis Gutierrez, a, a congressman who's been at the forefront of this fight for a long time now. And he sort of mentioned one of the, the really stunning, remarkable things about this dreamer fight is that their parents, these dreamers' parents, had the attitude of, we are going to keep our heads down, we are going to work quietly in the shadows, and we are going to do our best uh, to get to not be recognized. And these dreamers have the attitude that... that um, you know, Undocumented sort of, and unafraid. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I don't know when they sleep or uh, have time to um, take care of themselves, but... It, it's a it's a breathtaking amount of activism, just hunger strikes and uh, outside the Capitol. And uh, in September, they invited me to a surprise um, sort of sneak uh, protest at uh, the Trump Hotel, which, you know, like entering the Trump Hotel was was really like being in a Ralph Steadman uh, cartoon. <laughs> just like, <laughs> really had that vibe and you know all of a sudden just start screaming and and uh you know there was very quiet very immaculate ornate um but also sort of gaudy in the sort of trumpy way um bar and these act- dreamer activists i think there's a video up on box from from the story they sort of quietly took their seats uh and i think people were like why are there a bunch of young brown people 
<laughs> sitting down near me and then and then you could see it on their face sort of this uncertainty and then boom uh they just exploded and started screaming and, and demonstrating and um and and engaging in this sort of civil dis- disobedience that has really moved the needle on this in a big way I want to return to just before the government shutdown vote and an incident that really concerns me, which is that Schumer had put funding for Trump's border wall. And again, as an aside, 700 miles of border wall uh, already (laughs) exist. I think it's always important to put out. But he put funding for the border wall on the table before the shutdown, and it still didn't work. And it's remarkable and alarming for me on two different levels. Um, both of which, to my eye, recapitulate everything that's harmful and idiotic about immigration policy making for for the last two presidencies before Trump, which is Democrats open negotiations by offering to partially or significantly capitulate. Republicans still reject the offer. And then Democrats back down and get steamrolled. So wh- wh- like, what what do you make of, of, of Schumer's border wall offer? And now that he's put it on the table, is it just impossible for Democrats to unite behind a demand for a clean Dream Act? Well, I mean, there's a lot, I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I will first say that I think your overall impression is, is pretty spot on. I don't know if you saw sort of the, the Democratic Party defenders were out in full force yesterday on this. And some of them kept saying things like, did you know that the Republicans control the, like the White House and the House and Senate? And <laughs> Fun <therefore>, fact. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, the, the sort of like oozing, dripping condescension there is 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 pretty offensive, I think, especially when you're talking. You know, they, they think they're talking to the white Bernie bro left that they disdain, and who cares? I mean, they can do that. That's fine. But I mean, they should recognize that there are dreamers who are reading that stuff and just appalled by the. Um, condescension of it. So just moving beyond that, because I'm too angry (laughs) even thinking about it, I I do think there's a way in which, um, and uh, Vox's Darland has been just doing terrific work explaining this, but um, I I hear what you're saying about the wall. I, I think that if you asked every Democrat, they would say it's, it's bad policy. It's counterproductive. There are all the, um, sort of terrible effects that you're talking about and, and sort of democratic uh, negotiating from the middle um, is something that I think uh, the left has rightfully objected to for a long time, you know, including, you know, the grand bargain that Obama offered on Social Security a long time, you know, back in his administration. That said, I think just to defend Schumer here, I don't know how Jacobin readers would, and listeners would, would feel about defending Schumer, but but the wall is is overly you know has is invested with so much symbolic value that may be disproportionate to its actual real world harm and uh if you look at you know for instance the goodlatte bill and some of the house conservative vehicles um on immigration a lot of them call for you know interior enforcement and e-verify which is um really scary to a lot of dreamers and, and to a lot of undocumented immigrants. It was, and the, and uh, I believe the end of family, re, a lot of family reunification visas. Yeah. Yes, sort of exactly. And, and for, for Schumer to come out and say preemptively we'll agree to the wall. I, I mean, I understand why people on the left are, are upset and I think their anger will make a difference. So I'm not saying it's wrong to express, but I, I also think that, um, 
you know, in, in part, if they can offer short term one or two year funding for the wall, uh, I know that was that was being discussed. I'm not sure if, if that was exactly what Schumer was discussing. But I mean, that that really would have a very minimal impact compared to, for instance, dramatically increasing ICE's budget uh, and ramping up uh to, you know, deportations within the U.S. I mean, that, I mean, if you ask me, it seems like a pretty clear trade-off. Um, and look, like, I, again, I, I'm not here to defend Schumer, but I, I think um, the outrage over that specific offer it may be harder to understand. I, I, is that fair, do you think? I'm not going to say right now what I think is the the the, the trade-off that 700,000-odd dreamers should be willing to accept for for legal status in this country. But I will say that since the early 90s, we've gone from roughly 4,000 Border Patrol agents to nearly 20,000 today. We've gone from basically no wall at all to 700 miles of wall, roughly, thanks to the 2006 Secure Fence Act that both Chuck Schumer and Hillary Clinton voted for. Um, and the the wall has become this icon of of, of American fear, loathing and, and scapegoating, most of all, that has been costly in terms of of American political discourse. It's been costly in terms of dollars, and it's been costly in terms of if we think about the wall as part of this broader piece of dramatically intensified border militarization over the past three decades in terms of migrant lives, you know, hundreds of whom die every year as they're pushed mm-hmm. into more and more dangerous parts of the of the border. So so I don't think it's cost free. I'm not willing to say what I'm not willing to you know put my foot down and say, you know, X is unacceptable if it if it protects dreamers. I, I'm not comfortable saying that, but. But I do think the wall the wall has costs and has had costs. I, I think that's right. And, and um, I, I definitely agree with, with everything you said. Um, you know, there, there's the other end of this, too, which is that, you know, I, I was sort of pointing out how and, and I think you're, you're verifying um, that there, there's variations to what exactly a wall would consist of and the degree of pain it could cause. Um, and sort of on the flip side, there's also a degree of variation toward to, you know, what is authorization for dreamers, what kind of status they get. I think we in the media are too quick to just say, you know, protections for the dreamers. Like I've just used that shorthand, uh, maybe in a different dozen different stories. Um, but some of the configurations of protection are pretty bleak. Yeah, exactly. And and you could be talking about legalization for up to, you know, 1.5 or 2 million uh, different people in this country. You know, you have to remember that when Obama created DACA, a lot of young unauthorized immigrants were afraid of giving their information over to the federal government for good reason. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if even if you um, took care of all of the 700,000 people who currently or, or, or applied and were, were granted DACA, you would still be potentially leaving out a ton of different people. So, you know, whether, whether we're going to include those or not is an interesting question. Is there any chance as Ezra Klein and, and some other liberal defenders of the Democrats ending the shutdown have suggested 
that McConnell might come through and deliver a DREAM Act and that the Democrats' strategy of what seems to critics like me to be capitulation might be vindicated in retrospect. Um, I mean, there's a chance that McConnell comes up with something to protect the Dreamers, but uh, the White House has already said that it's not party to any of the agreements reached between Schumer and McConnell's, right? So the Senate could pass something and the White House and the House could just say, screw that, we're not, we're not touching that. But I, I, I do think, you know, to the point that a lot of the Democratic Party defenders have been making today, the, the Norm Core liberals have kept saying like that we get to refight this in uh, three weeks. And I would argue that the reason that they get to fight this again in three weeks is because Democrats were so strident in demanding these these concessions and because they were willing to shut down the government to get them, uh, which is the strategy that a lot of the same people have been cautioning against for a long time now. Um, so you can imagine a situation in which uh, sort of you're right for the wrong reason, right? Like where, you know, they're right that um, – that this is still possible to get this done, that protects the dreamers. But to me, it will clearly have been a result of the pressure Republicans have faced. I, I've, I've done interviews with a few Senate Democrats on the issue of climate change, and they firmly believe that they are very close to getting a bipartisan deal with Senate Republicans that that by just coaxing them slowly, I think um, Senator Whitehouse used the metaphor of it's sort of like you have to get them out of the prison. You have to help them break out of the Coke prison. And once they do that, they'd be um, willing to do climate deals. But that strategy of just sort of you know, easing up to them and asking for their permission and their help and, and being gentle has gotten us nowhere on climate change. <laughs> nowhere, right? And and it looks like at least immigration is still potentially going to be solved. And I think, you know, to say that that's anything but the result of Democrats playing hardball to me just seems totally at odds with the lack of progressive movement on basically any other policy front. So last question, you just wrote a piece about how this fight is a microcosm of a broader struggle between the parties left and center. How do you see that that larger struggle playing out in the lead up to the to the midterms and and beyond. I think you know full socialism within three years. Full communism. <laughs> uh, that's my my midterm. Uh, what do they call it? Like you're like the Larry like, Sabato of uh, full communism. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Your crystal ball. Larry Sabato of, of maybe I can go as the Larry Sabato of full communism for Halloween next year. Um, Only in D.C. can you do something right. so. <laughs> absurd nerdy and terrible um yeah i think i think the sort of the conventional wisdom that the party is moving to the left and that a lot of these more progressive candidates have a shot of winning in uh their primaries and and of winning the general election in 2018 is is, is really is true uh i i sort of vacillate wildly between sort of optimism and pessimism on this front um you know more than how half of house democrats have signed on to what was John Conyers' Medicare for All single-payer bill. Um, I don't know how many of them uh, actually believe in eradicating private insurance, but, uh, you know, if there's any, I think the biggest cause for hope is just looking at how responsive Democrats have been recently to activism and interest group pressure, particularly on the Dreamers. And even if you don't believe in the politicians themselves, which I don't think a lot of people do, the ability of those politicians to adopt 
the, the positions of the left um, tip of the spear is, is really encouraging and it speaks to, to the um, real impact. I think, you know, when you um, are in more academic left circles or in, you know, in, in universities or, or wherever, it, I think it's really easy to feel that there's just, it's just hopeless to convince anyone with actual real power to, to take any sort of effective stance stances on your behalf, but I, I really think the shutdown fight demonstrates that that, that is not true, um, that there are people involved in the fight that can impact people in power and, and that, that, you know, if still falling short, can make a real, real impact. Jeff Stein, thank you so much. I love being on. Happy to have, be back anytime. Thanks, Dan. Jeff Stein covers policy for The Washington Post. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that history ultimately repeats itself as farce, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, mostly twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends about the show via old-fashioned or online methods your choice, but all propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help. Mm-hmm.